Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting firm RiderFlex. If you enjoyed today's guest interview, please give it a like and be sure to subscribe to the RiderFlex podcast. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Steve Gallion on the Rider Flex podcast. Hello, Steve. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I like that sleeve, man. Let me look at it. Let me see that. What, 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 what do you got going yeah. on there? A uh, bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, uh, kind of, kind of funny story because uh, you know tattoos and 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 healthcare and technology CEOs <laughs> don't always blend together, right? But right. Uh, once upon a time during. Uh, my my younger life, right, uh, right, leading up into undergrad, I uh, actually lived with a tattoo artist for about four years, and so during that during that time period, we had a, a lot of good times, and I had a lot of free tattoos. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad <laughs> thing, but um, came away with with definitely a, a good perspective. But I, I I have a lot of respect for people who who do tattoos, who have them. I think it's a great cultural conversational piece. Um, you know, there's always a story behind it, whether it's uh, I don't remember getting it, which is the worst type of story or um, <laughs> for some type of personal reason. But, yeah, I have quite a few. So uh, both arms and and that can be a good or a bad thing. I mean, I, I've spoke about this at quite a few uh, different different colleges, actually, about, you know, when and if you should get one, depending on what type of work you're going into, because there is an inherent risk to it. But, you know, I like it. I like the art. Um, it's a path I chose to take. You can always cover it up. My general rule of thumb is, is, you know, nothing that I can't cover with a, with a, with a shirt, long sleeve and good to go. Um, I'm sure you've walked into a couple of conference rooms over time when you're like raising cash or about to ask rich people for money and you got a short sleeve on and they look at you like, Hey bro, you in the wrong room, right? You in the wrong meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, and so I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on this a little bit later, but it gets progressively easier if you have a track record, right? And maybe right, they care course. less, but um, yeah, <laughs> early days it can be uh, it can be a barrier to entry, you know, uh, for sure. So, tell me, tell me about uh, early life for you, <laughs> mom, mom, dad, where you grew up, some of that stuff. Yeah, I'm glad you asked because, uh, and, and I ask this a lot in in, in interviews, like when I'm doing, uh, especially ex- executives like retain searches, uh, which mm-hmm. I know you guys are very familiar with, but mm-hmm. uh, origin stories are super big. I think it plays into how you, how you yes. look at the Absolutely. world, how you overachieve yes. or, or, or overcome obstacles. Um, and totally agree. Totally agree. So yeah, I'm glad you asked. So growing up and, and I'll actually focus in on kind of where a question that people ask me, they always say, why is med trainer or why was med trainer headquartered? It's not anymore. And, Redlands, California. Um, and so that's where I grew up. So born and raised okay. in Redlands. Okay. And um, it's not that I've been there my whole life, but I moved away for several years and then moved back after um, my last exit where I was commuting two hours a day each way to, to Los Angeles. And I told my co-founder, I said, we're either putting the, the business right next to my house uh, where I'm going to be at, or you're going to find a new co-founder. commute. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so mom and dad, um, uh, my, my father's deceased now, but lived in Redlands as well. I have an older sister who's a pharmacist and then uh, a, a younger brother who's also unfortunately deceased. Mm. Um, 
But all of us, yeah, grew up there. Both, all of us went to high school there. And then my sister eventually left, went to NYU, and then ended up finishing up at, at UC Irvine. Um, I, myself, I went to UC Riverside for undergrad and then ended up also going to Cal Southern for law school. And then my brother just, he was kind of, uh, he was a little black sheep, the artist of the family. And so he did high school in Redlands and then ended up doing, making his way through, uh, you know, the beginnings of school in Orange County. Um, and unfortunately he passed away. So uh, mom is still alive, still lives there. Uh, she's a nurse practitioner. My father is a dentist. Uh, my sister is a pharmacist today. So a lot of healthcare uh, kind of touch points in my life, which has led my career and, and influenced my career. Not directly. I don't want to be on the provider side of healthcare, but I'm more on the technology and, and improving healthcare through uh, efficiencies and support systems that we can put in place. So that's kind that's, of been an influential piece. That's one of the reasons you have such great teeth right now, because your dad was a dentist, right? That's why you got the movie yeah. star smile. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll give you a I'll give you a funny story there. So from the age of about 14 till 17, I worked in my father's dental office in the lab. Cool. Yeah, so hidden away in the back, right, where no one could see me. And I learned a <laughs> lot from his lab technician, um, whose his first name is Andrew. He um, he taught me a lot about about dentistry, about making um, everything from crowns to veneers. So this the set of veneers in my mouth is actually my second attempt at creating my my own set of veneers. The first ah. attempt didn't turn out so well. The second attempt, uh, it, it turned out and I've had them in my mouth ever since, but yeah, I actually made my veneers myself in my dad's love lab. It. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I love it. Okay. Well now, you know, if you're on the Rider Flux podcast that maybe I can, we can work a deal out for uh, some of those for me. Yeah, Cause go. I gotta, I gotta, you know, I gotta, <laughs> uh, okay. So, um, and your mom's still nearby. You said, is she close to you? Yeah, she is. So she, she literally is. I, so I split time now between there and Las Vegas. So Las Vegas is technically home base. We've relocated the organization to Las Vegas uh, oh. officially um, okay. about a year and a half ago when I made the move. Uh, but was I still that, spend was, the, that, uh, was that for tax sorry. purposes or why, why, the, why the Vegas move? <laughs> yeah. So some of it was, it, is for individual tax purposes, okay. uh, looking at, um, looking at some of the, you know, we, we never know where, what, what the next chapter is going to bring in business. And we can talk about that a little bit in deeper detail if you'd like, but cause I don't, I don't measure success by the exit point of the business, but more okay. the in-flight, how we measure success. But mm -hmm. at some point there will be an event and we don't know what that event is. It could be, yeah. you know, you may have uh, another funding round. You may have a majority yeah. recap. You may have a strategic exit. You may have an IPO. All of those have different consequences. And so as part of, not just tax planning, but estate planning in general, uh, yeah. as we're starting to get older. Um, you know, it's part of my individual strategy. It's part of my co-founder strategy, as well as other members of the executive leadership team. So it, it was the right move for us. Um, and it was also the right move for the company in a lot of ways, but those are different, I guess, different, uh, different problems that we're trying to solve by doing mm -hmm. that there. I don't know why you wouldn't want to stay in California. The taxes are great. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. No, no right. we don't have to go down. We don't have to go down that road. Okay. So, Growing up then, uh, were your mom and dad divorced or they, uh, were they together the whole time when you were a kid? Together the whole time. So okay. all the all way right. through, uh, not to, not to say that, uh, they never had any challenges, right? Cause <laughs> yeah, everybody no. does, but yeah, yeah, they, they ended up uh, staying together all the way until my father passed away. Um, how old were you? Let's see about, oh, well, this was just recent. So this was oh. Oh. last year. 
Um, <clears throat> yeah, it hasn't even been a full year yet. Mm. And so he was, how, but he passed. How, go ahead. How old was he? Yeah, how old was he? Yeah, he was only 72 and he, he, he died of uh, ALS. So I don't know mm. if you're familiar with the disease, mm. but um, mm. bad and good out of that. Uh, lots of life lessons from my father. He's one of uh, my, what I call practical mentors, which are mentors that are people who may not be a business mentor, but people who influence your life around you. I, mm-hmm. I break this up on an interview I did with medium.com um, about the three different types of mentors that, that I look to. And my dad was one of my practical mentors, gave me a lot of life experience advice, gave me a lot of inputs um, throughout my career that were really, really helpful. And, you know, blessing in disguise from when he passed away, we didn't know that he had the disease until literally a couple days before he passed. So really, usually it's a disease that carries on for quite a long period of time. Yes. Right. And so long enough um, for everyone to, to get, you know, last words, say goodbyes, but short enough where he didn't have a prolonged period of, of suffering. Mm-hmm. So, but it's been about a year. Um, you know, we were, my dad and I were very, very close. So were miss you? him a lot, but you know, life is for the living as he would say. So, you know, we can't harp on it, I guess, or dwell on it. It doesn't, doesn't help anyone. Yeah. Was your brother there for that or your brother had already passed? <laughs> yeah. So no, he was there for that. And then tragically my brother passed away three weeks later. Uh, oh my gosh that oh yeah Yeah. holy cow that's uh for you and your sister and your mom that geez bro okay yeah Yeah. that was tough holy cow was there some moments there i don't want to go too dark on you but there had to be was there some moments there where you're like (laughs) okay uh what 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 what, what's going on here yeah um so a couple takeaways you know i think that positive moments out of all of that are kind of bringing awareness to the reasons and the things that had taken place. Um, both my brother and my father passed away for very, very different reasons. Both of them, um, both of them deserve, um, probably, you know, the world's attention. One is how can we look at chronic diseases and raise money for research and do those types of things. And then the other side of the coin is how do we help people that, that may be in trouble or have problems mm-hmm. with, with whether it's um, whether it's substance abuse or mental health. I'm, I won't get into the specifics of his case, but uh, I think it's a, a wide array of just awareness that needs to be brought to to people who are struggling with certain things, and mm-hmm. that it can um, there can be really negative outcomes if if we are you know like putting our heads in the sand while we know people mm-hmm. around us are struggling. Did it make you, and then we can move away from this, but one more question. Did it make you wake up every day and just push harder to enjoy every single day of life and go hundred miles an hour? Or did it make you be more cautious and, and careful? Um, I think it, you know, probably pushed me to spend more time with family. Okay look to intentionally spend more time with my kids and, and Mm. meaningful time. Right. Um, my kids have always known me. I've traveled a lot throughout my career for the better part of the last 15 years. I've been building Mm. different companies in the Mm. healthcare in market and it's very time intensive and demanding. So they're very understanding. My family's very understanding of me being, um, away. So they've kind of grown up in this household where dad is not the nine to five at home. Dad, what does that mean? I think it means that you know, you have to be pretty tight on how you spend your time when you're present and, and pretty prescriptive about not drifting into a lane where you're just, uh, 
you know, sit on the couch, put on a movie type dad. I'm not saying there's not moments for that. Right. But, um, Mm -hmm. big believer in quality time over, over quantity. And that became a, um, I guess I have a heightened awareness since then that, okay. you know, life is short and, and, and spend it well. How old are your kids? So I have a seven-year-old son who will be eight in August. And I have a 14-year-old daughter who will be 15 on New Year's Eve. Ooh, so, 15-year-old daughter. She's probably yeah. hitting, she's hit pub- full-blown puberty. And at 15, of course, here's the great news. They know everything. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't even have to go look for answers to anything. I just text her, call her. She's, she's great. <laughs> Is she, uh, are there signs of her behavior being very similar to you as a teenager? <coughs> and, and that's a two part question. And how were you as a teenager? Were you, uh, at the library every day and reading Bible verses or were you at the party? Uh, where, where were you? And then how is she? <laughs> yeah. So, <clears throat> Good question. Um, she's definitely not the same as me. She's very, uh, she's a self-starter. She's not a procrastinator. I don't need to draw out a big plan for her to accomplish academics. She's very busy between um, different extracurricular activities. She plays, plays the piano. She's a competitive cheerleader, not, not like a high school cheerleader, but kind of the equivalent if you think about like travel ball, very okay. time intensive. Um heavy travel demand. She's at the gym five days a week for three to five hours a day. Um, and somehow she manages to have the highest level of, of honors, um, in school all the way through. She's very, very smart. Um, my son we're yet to see, but he is, uh, (laughs) he actually probably is more aligned to to myself as a child. He's very into, very into technology. He's very into video games. Um, him and I will spend time together. I mean, we do, he, he does play soccer and does some uh, other activities, plays the piano as well. Um, oh. but, but him and I, uh, we'll play, we'll sit down and play like Fortnite or you know, something on PlayStation five. And, and some, that's something that we've bonded over. Cause I have a, a young, when I was younger, I have a deep love and respect for video games. Right. And, okay. and now I can't play with him anymore. Cause he's gotten so good over literally the past six months. It's like embarrassing <laughs> for me to sit there with him. But to the second part of your question, how was I? Um, <clears throat> I was pretty well balanced. Uh, I was pretty much done with high school, by my junior year, I think my senior year, I had one class. I moved out of oh. my parents' house when I was 16. So really? not because we had tension, but because I was just kind of ready for the next layer of my life and, and wanted to get out on my own, which in hindsight is like crazy. Like what parent is going to allow their 16 year old kid to move out. Right. And, and finish out. You high do? School. Did you move in, move in with some friends or what'd you do? Yeah. So uh, a friend of mine who had graduated a couple of years earlier in high school, he had, he had bought his first house uh, or his parents had bought him his first house. wanted to, And I just rented a room from him and um, wow. it was it was good. It was a, a, a really good time partying for me. Um, you know, I mean, I've, I've done my fair share of those types of things, but okay. Um, okay. I'm not, I don't have like a huge focal point in my life around, you know, bar hopping these days. <laughs> those, days are, those days are over. Okay. So, yeah. so no, no crazy. Uh, you, you never had to call your dad from the, from the sheriff's office and say, Hey dad, can you come get me? Did any of that? No, that, that has not been, been the case. So <laughs> I don't think I'd stretched it that far, but, um, okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. 
All right. And then, um, so when you go to school uh, and you majored in uh, economics, right? Business economics, did you know, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur? Did you have an entrepreneurial bug because your dad owned his own dentist outfit? Did you have any idea what you wanted to do? Or you're like, no, I'm just going to go to school and chase girls and drink beer. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good question. So by, you know, my transition through, let's say from high school to undergrad, I was always tinkering around in business, right? Well, trying to do, I had ideas, but no capital, like I'm broke student trying to figure things out. But um, the very first company that was a, a, a successful outcome for me was actually when I was 21, I was still in undergrad. So I had partnered up with a couple other folks. We had created a, um, it was a technology company. And when it was focused on uh, encryption, basically we had a proprietary encryption algorithm. You and some friends are sitting around having some beers at college. You're like, Hey, let's start an encryption company. <laughs> that was, that's pretty, pretty close to what happened actually. Um, we, we had one, one person who was the inventor and creator of that encryption algorithm. Um, okay. I had come on to open up some of the go-to-market function um, as well as be one of the finance source. And then our other partner was purely on the finance or side okay. and um, interesting outcome there. So we actually ended up getting out of that company pretty uh, just after we started taking on revenue. So um, that company exited really early and it actually exited to, to an organization in the aerospace industry, which was not not foreseen. The, the technology wasn't designed for aerospace, but that's the route that it took. Um, and that was a very, very small acquisition, but it got, got a taste of kind of what kind of this, the life cycle of a company looked like. Um, after that, that you were like, point, oh, after that, you were like, oh, this is easy. Let's just start another one. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that was the mentality, but the reality of it was like, it wasn't easy. And like, we hadn't even seen, or I hadn't even seen what, what business looked like at any type of scale. Mm -hmm. right? right. And so right. Um, a couple other failed companies along the way, okay. but moving out of, uh, out of undergrad led to my, my next company, which was uh, actually wasn't even in technology, which is a very weird transition. Most, most CEOs that you probably talk to stick in, in either technology or stick in the type of business that they're doing. Um, the common denominators in my choices were always in market wanting to be healthcare, whether it was or not. Um, okay. And reoccurring revenue businesses. So the next business was a medical waste business, which uh, my co-founder George Fernandez and I um, built a, a pretty successful uh, medical waste company that regionally ran from on the western seaboard of the united states all the way down from all the way uh starting in portland down through california multiple facilities over to arizona and we sold that company in 2013 to stericycle who's the, the largest medical waste provider at least in the united states publicly traded and that was a good wow. outcome yeah yeah wow congratulations so that was your first major big time exit yeah so that one was the one where you, we kind of you know we have some little bit of cash. Do we want to keep working? Was the question like, so you um, could have retired. You made enough on that one to retire or you yeah, could have become yeah. an investor or whatever. Yeah. Like you could have made, used the money that you had to make enough money to, to, to retire. Right. Just focusing on management of the money. But, um, too young told myself, that. I, yeah, told myself I'd take a year off. And three weeks later we were sitting in a unfurnished on the floor of an unfurnished office space that we'd rented talking about, 
um, this idea we have for, for med trainer. Right. Well, let me, so so early on, so basically you had this entrepreneurial bug in college and you started, you started chatting up with your friends and coming up with business ideas, et cetera. So you never having a regular job working for somebody else was never in the cards for you. Doesn't sound like. Well, it wasn't where I wanted to be, but I will tell you, I'm super big on people. I'm super big. On, I, I think, you know, as an organization, and I'm going somewhere to answer your question here. Um, I run all and have ran all of the companies with an employee first mentality, employees okay. first, customer second, shareholders third. Okay. Um, and the reason for that was I think that strong companies are built on the backs of really great teams. Can't have great teams without leadership that embraces that kind of employee first mentality. Mm-hmm. And after the first acquisition, uh, it's really interesting how fast you can go broke when you give a young kid a bunch of money, and, <laughs> or at least what, what it felt like was, was a bunch of money at the time. And so I remember being completely broke after, after that. After, uh, after the sale of Waystream Solutions? No, 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 no. After the sale oh, of, of, okay. of the first company. Yeah. And um, I ended up taking a job as uh, as uh, uh, one of the executive team members at for Target Corporation. So I came in and wow. worked there for a while and I worked in the logistics process there. And it was a, a very interesting um, time in my life, but I'll tell you what I, what I learned. And this is the, this is like the two in the morning to noon process. And you're leading teams anywhere from 200 to 400 people and it's everything that has to do with the truck arriving to the store, to the product being placed on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Very diverse teams in that in that early morning, right? And I'm mm-hmm. very young, out of college kid. Most of the people there are not college educated. Like, dude, you know, you think, how do you really lead a team like that? And I didn't know shit about doing that. Like, I <laughs> candidly, I just, I, 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 I thought I did. Yeah. Um, but about six months in, I've really gotten good at figuring it out and about how to kind of lead from the front and, and, and be a, a servant leader and <clears throat> be able to work along, um, work alongside your team to get them to know and trust you and build that trust to where they actually embrace the leadership aspect. And I think that that was a, a pinnacle moment in my life to really mm-hmm. embrace like and become the best version of a leader that I could. And I learned a lot of that from the, from my time at Target. And um, there's an un, unwritten um, kind of rule at, at MedTrainer. When we see Target on a, on a resume and someone's <laughs> spent some time there, then I'm making sure they get an interview because I do believe in a lot of the, just the values and the principles that are taught there. And I think that it's a good, good culture or was when I was there. So well, I did have know- a job at one point. Okay. Uh, great point, by the way, um, for looking for talent, even, even as a recruiting firm here at RiderFlex, if I see, if I see a retail career person that was in management or restaurant, um, those people, if you lived for several years in retail or restaurant, especially while you were going to school and you had leadership experience and you made it five, six years or whatever, even, yeah, those people, they've learned how to communicate. They've learned how to planning, organization, 
diversity, different styles, personalities, uh, and they usually they they transition really well into other careers. And so I I constantly look for that as well. Great great point. Okay, so you exit out of uh, Waste Stream Solutions, and you're you call your buddy up, and you're 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 like, hey, let's let's do something else. <laughs> Where did you see what was the um, opportunity that you saw to create Med Trainer? Where did how did you see the opening? How did you have the vision for it? Talk to me about it. Yeah, um, I think that along anybody's journey or path, whether you're working for someone, you know, yourself or somewhere else, openings will, will kind of avail themselves about mm. and opportunities do as well. Like there's tons mm. of opportunities that, that happen every single day that we may or may not notice, right. About mm. that could change, like completely pivot the direction of our life. If we go down that path. So yes. in this case, when we were doing waste stream solutions for whatever reason in California, um, medical waste handling is paired with OSHA training. And there's some there, I actually know the reasons, but I won't bore you with all the details, but as a, a kind of a byproduct of that, almost all medical waste companies provide OSHA training as part of their service to small, most mostly in the SMB healthcare market. Um, okay. And so when we owned that company, we were just like the others and we were providing everyone with a big OSHA three ring binder that we had licensed from someone else and we could deliver and give it to people to self-train. And at, right at the same kind of time frame, I remember like Redbox and Blockbuster and these companies starting to struggle, right? Blockbuster eventually went out of business. And I'm just thinking as Netflix is coming in and streaming is happening, like this is going to happen to this training world too. And it's already taking place in, in more of, on the enterprise scale in healthcare, but in the small mid-sized business, they're still doing this by paper. Like the biggest competitor in that space is probably, you know, uh, I don't know, FedEx Kinko's and, and, and kind of Microsoft office because everybody is doing such a manual process and, the writing was just on the walls. Technology was advancing. This technology needs to become available to deploy these types of assets to healthcare as well. And there's a huge, huge amount of organizations that the total addressable market in healthcare, even from the SMB and mid-market perspective mm -hmm. is, is massive in the United States. And um, the opportunity was there. Um, we had thought about how that kind of the, the, we had the why, but now we're thinking about the how we would actually accomplish it. And that's what took us a little while to put together kind of conceptually is like building out um, just like anything else before you would, let's say, build a house, you're going to make sure that you put the plans on paper. Right. So that was part of our, our process, but that's, this is where we saw the point of entry. It was, it was literally availed during the, during running the, the medical waste company and I we did, did the market work on it and it just penciled out to, to be a real opportunity. Well, are you the visionary in the, in the relationship or where, where between you and your co-founder, what's, where, what's his top skill set versus yours? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great question. So yeah. Um, I think initially I came up with the vision on like creating this learning management platform that had baked in content for the SMB and mid market. And George, my co-founder is really, really good at, um, especially early stage operation. Like, like when you're, when you're bootstrapping and you're creating a company from nothing that's pre-revenue, 
you, you there's a lot of brute force there. Mm-hmm. It, you know, you can't afford to can't afford to start thinking about putting really advanced frameworks for outcomes in place or doing, you know, really intensive executive searches. Like we're you're you're heavily brute forcing, you're looking at every dollar that goes out because it's your money. And so um George has a really eloquent way of approaching tough problems in the in the early stages of the business and coming up with solutions that are that are efficient and mm-hmm. and then actioning against those. He's he's a really, really good tactician and carrying those things out. And like where we sit today um, in terms of in the org, like George focuses heavily on special projects that require kind of that founder eye, um, you know, unlocking tough locks, so to speak, and opening okay. new doors. So emerging markets and, and really focusing on, on business development where I'm going to be much more on the corporate strategy and, and running the company from the top, working with the executive uh, team to make sure that we're driving to certain goals. Uh, today, we have a little bit of a more advanced framework, but back then, um, it's good to have somebody who has an opposite skill set as you when you're building. Mm-hmm. Um, no doubt. Yeah. <clears throat> no doubt. Sounds like sounds like you were the, the people guy, face of the company visionary, and he was on the ops side and the tactical execution for the most part. Maybe maybe there was some Correct. bleed over, but okay. Yep. yep. Uh, when you guys first started, um, you put money in that you made from uh, the exit of the waste uh, company, right? Of the medical waste company. You both, were you 50-50? Did you, did you have seed money right away or was it just your cash? How, how'd you guys do it? On yeah, fi- yeah, 50-50. Um, we both put mm-hmm. in money and no, we didn't take any early money for, for the business. Um, there's okay. pros and cons to that. You know, I think that there's a time for early money. And then there's, if you are in a position to be able to bootstrap with your own cash and get kind of as far as um, let's say, as far as you can possibly get. Do you recommend for the listeners right now? I mean, I know it's not a black and white answer. It's kind of gray depending on your situation, but generally do you recommend for the aspiring entrepreneur to, to put in their own cash and stick to their bootstrapping as much as possible in, in the beginning before they take cash from others? What do you recommend? Yeah, no, that's another great question. I think that it depends on what your experiences are. So if you're a first time founder, I think there's a lot of high, a very high benefit to raising early money from the right people. Because mm. as if you're a first time founder, you probably don't know. Um, I mean, what you're doing, uh, not to say that I know what I'm doing either, but you don't. Yeah, no, no, uh, you know, most founders don't. No, I totally agree. Yeah, go ahead. So from my lens, like if you buy into the process, eyes wide open early on and saying, hey, maybe I'm giving up some uh, heavier rights than I would like to or more mm-hmm. equity than I'd like to. But what am I gaining from the smart money aspect? You know, who's mm-hmm. my real partner? How did I frame out what's important as a partner? Are they really driving me towards uh, for an angle of success or are they just going to be just the money aspect? If it's just the money, I would try to find uh, a different approach. If I'm, if I'm looking at early money, like friends and family rounds and stuff, typically I feel are not great ideas because um, it doesn't help you other than just put, put cash on the balance sheet. Oh, that's uh, a good point. That's a great tip right there for the listeners. Let's just take a pause right there. Yeah. If you're not getting the wisdom and experiences and education and mentoring along with the cash, you're missing out on an important piece. That's true. Great point, Steve. Um, Okay, very good. So you guys put in your own cash at first, didn't raise early money. I have another question on the 50-50 split. This is another big question for early entrepreneurs. 
so often people will call me, Hey, what should I do on this? You know, generally I recommend 51 to 49 for co-founders most of the time. And I steer them away from the 50, 50 because the whole flip a coin when you get in an argument thing can get messy. What's your recommendation on this? Yeah. You know, generally partnerships are, are muddy and, um, I've been blessed to work with the same partner for the past 15 years. Uh, there are times when we have had our disagreements as, as all people have, but at, at the end of the day, I think that if you're able to acknowledge one person acknowledging to the other, like, Hey, like at this stage where we're at today in our business, mm -hmm. um, my co-founder, if I say, Hey, we're going left. And he's like, I really think we should go right. If I choose to go left, he's going to support me. And, and like, that's the relationship we have um, at scale. Now, I do tend to agree with you about somebody having more equity, although that's not always the defining factor about which way that the tides turn or shift. Um, equity can be sliced and diced however you want. Control is a different thing to right. solve for, which you can solve for contractually. So if people really want to make sure ownership is 50-50, you can solve for the who has the last word in the contract. Um, I so will let's pause. You, is, if, you, yeah. if you don't mind, I want to pause for the for the for the aspiring entrepreneur right there, the commoner, so to speak. That's a big tip. Uh, I, I know um, experienced entrepreneurs are bored with what I'm about to say, but yes, if it's 50-50 equity on the cap table, that's one thing. But in the operating agreement, which you should have. Uh, a clean, good operating agreement written by an attorney, probably. Um, there can be stipulations for, for the control of the day-to-day -day decisions in the company, and that can be cleaned up there. And if you don't have that, when you're first starting out in a, in a business with a co-founder and you, and you don't get all that squared away, it's going to get messy on you, and I don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll echo that. I think that no matter how good the relationship is at the, 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 the start, like you need to plan for things that can go wrong. Remember yes. everybody's in love on their wedding day. Right. And so <laughs> like that carries over into the business world too. And yes. having clearly defined not only responsibilities, but clearly defined um, kind of how do you mitigate tough conversations? Yes. yes. And it can be very, very helpful, especially putting that down early when before, before the problems. <laughs> did you guys start. learn, did you guys have some miscues on that type of stuff on your first business or two together and you got cleaner and better about it as you moved along and started med trainer? Oh yeah. So these are like, we got probably pretty lucky and the fact that we had a, a good co-founder relationship and were able to navigate through those, mm. those tough situations. Whereas mm -hmm. um, had we had a major problem in our other businesses, like it could have been catastrophic if we thought about like the legal outcome, right? Yes, it wouldn't right. have, it wouldn't have been so, um, so easy to handle. So I definitely <laughs> would recommend it, there's a, there's a reason people spend, uh, and it doesn't have to be a lot. You can spend, you know, five grand and short exactly. stuff with an attorney, but like That's it's right. important. If you're serious about the business, it's important. So what Steve Gallion just said is, Hey, look, we uh, dodged a few landmines on those first couple because we didn't have some paperwork as clean as it should, should have been. We got a little bit lucky there because we had a great relationship. We learned from it. We made sure it was super clean uh, moving forward. And yeah, you're right. Five, six grand. That's all. You don't have to spend tens of thousands of dollars. It's not that big of a deal. People think that it's like, oh, I don't want to spend all the money on an attorney. It's worth it.
Okay. Um, so you get going med trainer. Um, do you mind share, Do you want to share how much you guys put in to get started? And then when did you do your first raise and what, cause you're on the series, you just closed the series B, right? So yeah. walk us through the, walk us through the money timeline. Yeah. So money timeline, you know, early, uh, bootstrapping, we both had a, a couple million bucks into the business by the time that we, we had gotten to our series a, um, series a was effectively a $14 million raise. Um, when it was all said and done, we had an $11 million a round. And then we had a $3 million a one round when COVID happened. We just wanted to add a little bit of extra cushion. I uh, didn't know what, what might take place. Um, you know, I think that it's always, it's always better to be prepared. Uh, when, especially in right now, a lot of, a lot of founders are probably experiencing this right now when capital markets are changing. True. So True. cost True. of capital is changing. So we had $14 million series A with telescope partners. Um, one of oh, my, so it's one one partner. The PE one, is that a PE? Partner. Are they PE or VC or what are they? Yeah, so they're they're actually more on the like if you think about like VC to PE and everything in between with growth sitting in between. Our mm-hmm. A was they're more of an earlier stage growth uh, firm, okay. so not on the VC side, not on the PE side, but somewhere in the middle. I was talking to several different firms. We had several different options, but. This coming down to like that smart money aspect, who's the right person for our stage that can help not only provide money, but mentorship and, and some coaching along the way. And, and there was just a massive cultural fit there. So that was our series A and, and uh, most money, that's the most, yeah. that's the most money you had ever raised. I mean, that was a huge step for you and your co-founder at that time, at that moment, $11 mm-hmm. million raised for you guys. That was a huge deal. Yeah. It, well, it didn't only raise the money. Um, and I say it, it was in the company. It raised the bar of expectation for us mm-hmm. too. So mm-hmm. remember mm-hmm. the more money that you raise um, and the more investors that you pad into a single round, uh, the, the expectations um, will get a little bit tougher. The bar is risen. People are believing in you um, just as much as you're believing in yourself. Investors are investing in the management team just as much as they're investing in the company or the opportunity. No no doubt. Congratulations. Congratulations yeah, thank on you. that raise. Did you lose control? Did you and your co-founder lose control on the cap table with 11 million or did you maintain control? No. So, so even to date, we're still in control of the business. What? So, so, what? so those are um, minority hold rounds. Well, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. You closed $43 million series B round and you're still in control. That's correct. Yes. What? <laughs> okay. Congratulations, my friend. Thank you. Nice. You, oh, holy cow. If you can raise that much money and you guys are still in control, you, you're the man. Congrats. Nice job. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, this, it's, it, it is a team effort, though. I, I, one message that I would tell any founder is like, think it, control, not control. When you start getting into later stage, mm-hmm. um, look, at the end of the day, my board would expect me if I'm not the right person running this business, they will expect Mm -hmm. me to find someone who would be the right person. And when your desire to win becomes bigger than your ego, that's when people really start paying attention to you as a leader too. Like that's we, so yes, control, I guess from a cap table perspective, but, um, we have the board, board, if the board asks you to move out of the way you would, cause you, cause you're humble enough. Okay. Got it. We got to do what's best for the company to make the company continue to grow on the path that we put it on. And that's more important than the individual person on the leadership layer, but that's good uh, stuff, Steve. Congratulations. How many employees right now? We're just about 300 employees. 
um, wow. which is, is pretty big for a company our size. Um, but part of the reasoning is, is a big portion of our business is actually operated out of our office in Mexico. So engineering, um, some, some customer success, uh, it's divided up, uh, product, uh, as well as things like uh, DevOps are also handled in, in our Mexico operation. Okay. Is there a separate LLC or separate S Corp company filed in Mexico? Because I saw something on your LinkedIn. Yeah, so there is. So we have, um, and there's a lot of reasons for how you can do this. A lot of ways to skin this cat. But we have uh, another company in Mexico called Codigo Fuente that is a is not a technically a subsidiary, but is Codigo Fuente is the exclusive arm for its book of, or piece of business that it provides to MedTrainer in Mexico. And there's there's a lot of reasons for doing it that way versus not doing it that way. And like I said, there's a lot of ways to skin the cat, but we chose to form another company there. And part of the reason for doing that for me has as little to do with the, let's say the actual corporate layout or the entity structuring and more about the people. If you think about teams, going back to like building good teams, mm -hmm. I want my team in Mexico to be able to have culture and identity and, and fulfillment um, as a Mexican company too, not just being a, you know, uh, maybe a forgotten about arm of a U.S. company, right? Okay. So like okay. it, it operates with its own GA function. It operates with a lot of its own cultural functions and the U.S. side of the business does too. And then somewhere in between, we marry them both and, and both uh, arms of the organization get along really, really well. But it was important to me from a, the, the cultural side that Mexico felt like a real business. Like I didn't want them feeling like, you know, um, okay. let's take a big, big businesses call center somewhere. Cause that's not what they are. They're, they are a real business with a real awesome team there. And just like the U S side of our business and then marrying them together, we get tons of benefit on both sides. Is it a wholly owned subsidiary or how do, how's it set up? Yeah. Yeah. For all intents and purpose. Um, Cause the, the entity naming structures are a little different there, but you can think about it being set up just like that. So we don't do work for anybody else or software work for anyone else. It's just for MedTrainer. Okay. Very good. Um, congratulations on the cash raise, the revenue, the increase, 60% increase. Uh, and hopefully this weird market thing we're going through right now doesn't stop your increase. By the way, we're recording this on May 31st, 2022 for the listeners. Uh, congratulations on everything you have set up. Plus you're learning how to be the CEO of a 300 person company. That's a daily learning experience for you, right? There was no, you didn't, you didn't go to, you didn't get some certificate to have that. You're learning as you, as you move along. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. What's been the hardest thing about scale for you uh, as far as the growth of the business? What's been the most difficult thing? Um, you know, probably asking people for their time. So, and I'll mm. tell you exactly what I mean. It, mm. When you're at the CEO level, I don't have somebody who we can place above me to show me how to be a better CEO. Um, the people who are above me that I can talk to, I have my investors, I have my board, I have operators within the investment ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, I have other peers. So I have one-on-ones that I schedule with peer CEOs from bigger companies, from smaller companies, Good. and we hash Good. out tough conversations. But 
it's a big ask. I mean, if I have to ask you as a CEO of another org, hey, can you take an hour out of your month to yes. talk to me about this? My mentorship group is it operates within kind of that, that whole view that I just gave you and mm. going out and asking people to dedicate time to, to give to you, to really work through and, and care, not just, you know, not just sit on a meeting or a phone call with you, um, but actually track the problem sets as they progress. You know, if I talked to you last month and now we talked this month, let's follow up on what we talked about. Like those are my mentorship one-on-ones and asking for folks to sign up for that is a, is a pretty big ask and mm-hmm. it's mission critical to success of scaling. Um, yes. I don't know how else you could do it. Yes. Yes. You know, you have mentioned people so many times throughout this, not only the value and importance of the team that you've built around you, but you have mentioned mentors and fellow CEOs several times that you reach out to. And you mentioned the word earlier too, being humble humble enough to listen and ask questions. You've, you've, you've said that a bunch of times throughout this, this interview, which I really appreciate. You know, so many guys like you that have been serial entrepreneurs and they've had a successful exit or two, they, they get into this very narrow, cocky uh, uh, lane, I would call it. Um, and they kind of start thinking, well, I know, I, you know, I'm the smartest guy in the room now because I built a company and so I I know my shit and, you know, they get, they get, uh, to where they, they stop listening and you are completely opposite of that. Uh, you've said several times how important it is to be able to call people and ask questions and learn and grow. Even though you've, you've had a lot of experience and success already, which I really appreciate. And I think that's a, Super valuable tip for the listeners. I have met with so many CEOs, young CEOs, and they say, well, you know, what's the, what's the biggest piece of advice you can give me? And I always say, here's the biggest thing I can tell you. Talk less and listen more. <laughs> Especially if they invented something or they created something, right? Where they think, oh, I'm the smart guy. It's like, come on now. You need to listen more. So great, great, great advice to you. I appreciate it's, it's, all it's of that. Funny you, it's funny you say that. I subscribe to that heavily in day-to-day business. And I was thinking about this as we came into this interview. And I'm like, you know, this is probably one of the situations where I have to talk a little more than I'm used to. Right? Yeah, but I, this is different though. <laughs> right? Yeah, this, this is, is different. different. This yeah, is different. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, but this is, yeah, totally different. Yeah. But in general, when you're talking to your mentors and your fellow CEOs, yeah, there's just so much you can learn. Um, and I appreciate the fact that you're still humble, even though you've had the success you've had. Uh, let me ask you this. So if you could give, um, I don't know, and we could do a whole episode, we could, shit, we could do a series on this next question, but, uh, there's a couple of guys out there. They're friends like you and your buddy, George, I think is right. Right. George, Yep, George, they think they're thinking about starting a company, but, uh, they, they haven't, uh, they haven't you know, dove in the pool all the way yet. Um, what, what would you say to a, an aspiring uh, friends out there thinking about starting something, anything, just 30,000 feet, two or three things you want to tell them? Yeah. I think one, you, you got to really spend some time together to learn, make sure that you're going into a market that's viable. You don't want to end mm-hmm. up spending two years of your life into something that has a total mm-hmm. addressable market too small to have success. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so do some upfront market work, make sure that you're getting into the right, the right product offering to the right market. Okay. Um, to spend the time to really define who's doing what, like you have to go in to the business with a very, very defined role set for each individual as a founder. And somebody has got to be in charge. Um, can't have everybody be in charge. Yeah. I think that's a big mistake. I, I'm going to pick on something here that, that will kind of echo that point that some people will disagree with me, but I don't like the co-CEO model. You see it sometimes Mm co-CEO. I think it sends a message saying, Mm -hmm. if you can't decide who's in charge, what else can this business not decide? (laughs) And um, think about that. Like, seriously, like who is actually running the business before before you ink up on your, with your partners? Those are two probably of the areas that I would really, really focus on. Then the last one would be the, the, the product that you're selling. Make sure that you're, what you're doing is, is you're not creating some product that only, you know, some very niche component right. or person in the market's going to buy. You don't want to, um, your product has to have value. And if you can get all those three, three things in order, you probably have a, at least a, a fighting chance. Right? Okay. Very good. And then how about this? You've now interviewed, thousands of people hired hundreds and hundreds of people now already. And you're still a young man. Uh, I mean, how old are you? So I will be 38 here in July. Yeah. Yeah. You're still a young guy. Congrats. Congrats on being where you're at so far at that age. A couple of uh, tips on finding the right talent and hiring the right people that you would give to hiring managers. Yeah. Um, Talent is probably top of mind. Like that's probably the biggest thing that I hear CEOs really looking to solve for. And Mm -hmm. I think when you think about who you're, whether you're recruiting at the executive layer or you're recruiting at the management layer below, or even down to the individual contributor layer, um, it's important to think about who the people are culturally, how they're going to fit in to, to your org. Also where they really spike. So people come in all different flavors. Um, if you're a building a business that is SMB and mid-market oriented, SaaS software, let's say your ASP is $10,000 a year, um, not a self sign-up model, you probably are going to want to find a sales leader, let's say, I'm just using an example, that has a similar DNA, mm-hmm. you know, has led a business like this. And then think about the revenue sizing of your business too, like have are the people you're hiring, especially on the executive team, have they seen what good, good or great looks like at scale? If we're a $25 million company this year, growing to be a $50 million company next year, hiring a sales leader that's only seen the 10 to $20 million build probably isn't, isn't going to scale alongside of us the way we need. Um, So, you know, really defining the key attributes that are important to you and then sticking within that zone. I'm sure you see this a lot in your, in the recruiting side of your business. If you're not, specking to the right profile, you will find yourself respecking and doing the search again later. <laughs> Do you value soft skills over hard tactical specific experience or vice versa? How, how do you, if you had to force rank them, I guess, and maybe I can ask it this way by using an example. Um, if you met a young lady that was going to lead your sales team, that was the uh, best um, I don't know, wholesale furniture salesperson on the planet, 
and loved repeat, loved her people skills, great personality, great references, featured company culture, blah, blah, blah. Revenue wise, it matched, but didn't have any SaaS experience. Yeah, it's a good, good question. I think that, um, for me, there's a balance there, but if I'm going to have to choose one, I'm probably, I'm probably going to shift into the area and this will be different, but depending on what type of business you're building, shift into the area of highest importance. And so if I had to force rank something, like I'll use MedTrader as an example, Mm -hmm. um, healthcare isn't the number one, um, experience indicator that we need. It's, it's going to be SaaS, SMB mid-market. I'm using sales as an example. And, and, mm-hmm. and then probably healthcare. Okay. Like we, healthcare is the easiest to teach. So I think that that person, mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. my questions for them, the, your example would be where they, they were wholesaling furniture. Was this an inside role or they were literally in, in a furniture warehouse doing this? Or what was the mm-hmm. environment? Because the in-person sales are going to be different. Like how you're running mm-hmm. that versus mm-hmm. building a high performance sales team that's almost wholly inside. They're two different animals. So I would dive more into those sides, but I don't think that the furniture versus the healthcare gets that person out. I just think that we need to refine and okay. and and make sure that they have the right underlying assets underneath those sales skills to really know they're going to be the person to carry us forward. I did hear you mention company culture. Um, so when you are interviewing somebody, you are, I heard you say, I'm looking past their specific skill to see if they match the culture that I'm trying to build here. Is that accurate? And is it, it is, I, I think um, culture also has an element of like where people are baked in of their desire to progress, their desire to learn, their desire to teach others. Yes. And so if they have those types of characteristics culturally, they may be able to scale faster on the, the hard skill side where they might be missing something and be, be willing to do that as well. But I think that the, the cultural piece that's important is if you bring somebody in and not to pick on these businesses because they're great businesses, but somebody in who's done 10 years at Salesforce into a smaller startup type yeah. atmosphere. That's hard. It's, it, it's a tough, tough thing that's to a, do. That's tough. That's yeah. tough. As, as a recruiting business, I got one more question for you. I know we're almost out of time as a recruiting firm. Um, that is a, that is a high rate of failure, uh, is a, is a person that has only been with fortune 500 type companies. And then we try to slam them into a a startup or a small company and their, their heads explode. (laughs) Yeah. They just, you know, and every time we talk to those candidates, they're like, I can do it. I can do it. This is what I've always wanted to do. Blah, 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 blah. Like, okay. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, well, I could ask you a bunch more questions, Steve, but I know we're almost out of time. Last one. At this stage in your life now, and, and let's let's for this question, let's set your two kids aside for a second. So excluding their, your children, what is your core purpose in, in life? I mean, would you, you ever wake up and go, what's, what the fuck am I doing on the planet? Really? I mean, what, what is my real core purpose here? <laughs> How would you define yours? Um. You know what? I think that if you just thought about it in a single word, like progression is probably a word for purpose uh, for me. And okay. it's not about progression for just myself and my career, but how do I progress or, or influence people around me to have a better outcome in, in their lives? And that doesn't mean better financial outcome. It could be that I spend the time at the office um, with the right people making lunch for the whole office where now they're going to carry that recipe back to their families and that 
and that brought some joy to them or, you know, always learning, always progressing, I think is probably where kind of the, my purpose point is, is, is how can we touch a lot of people through um, general progression of whether it's the business, personally, um, conversations, mentorship. Uh, but that's probably my purpose is to really impact others through, through being um, progressive in, in things that I can demonstrate and that are within my kind of realm of control. Good stuff, my friend. Steve, thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast. Sure. I really appreciate it. Yep. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.